Welcome to Writer Mother Monster. I'm your host, Lara Ehrlich, and tonight's guest is Anna V.Q. Ross. Before I introduce Anna, thank you all for tuning in, and please chat with us during the interview. If you didn't know, this series is live and then recorded and posted as audio and video online. But first, you may always join us for the first initial live recording. If you choose to chat with us, and I hope you do, your comments will appear in our broadcast studio and we'll weave them into our conversation. If you enjoy the episode, as always, please consider becoming a patron or patroness of Writer Mother Monster to help me keep this podcast going. Now I'm excited to introduce Anna. Anna V.Q. Ross's most recent book, Flutter Kick, won the 2020 Benjamin Saltman Poetry Award and is forthcoming from Red Hen Press in 2022. She's the author of three previous poetry collections, Figuring, If a Storm, and Hawk Weather. Her work has received fellowships from organizations including the Fulbright Foundation and appears in Harvard Review, The Nation, The Paris Review, Poetry Northwest, The Southern Review, and elsewhere. She is a poetry editor for Salamander, teaches at Emerson College, and lives with her family in Dorchester, Massachusetts, where she runs the performance series Unearthed Song and Poetry and Raises Chickens. She has two kids, ages 11 and 14, and describes writer motherhood in three words as fractured, brilliant, sleepless. Now, please join me in welcoming Anna. Hi. 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 I feel like we should be dancing after that introduction. That was <laughs> That's great. Move, right? mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so let's talk first about those three words you use to describe writer motherhood. <laughs> Well, um, they were just like the three first things that came to mind. I didn't have time to, to edit, to self-edit. Um, but yeah, I mean, sleepless always. I, you know, my kids are 11 and 14. Like I ought to be sleeping more by now, but sadly I have to report that I'm not. Um, <laughs> but, um, I, I don't know. I, that's, that's a, uh, Maybe um, a way of introducing fractured, which is definitely uh, an experience of motherhood that like you just don't have that continuous forward motion in your life, in your career, in your work. You're constantly being interrupted. Um, but at the same time, you're also constantly being offered these other ways of seeing um, that you wouldn't if you had that sort of direct path. Um, so I think that actually that's a real benefit of motherhood is, you know, the forcible interruption. It can be very tiring. Um, but uh, it's something that I didn't realize before I became a mother would be something that I would, I think, um, that would enrich my life um, and in my and my work, too. Um, just having to shift and constantly see things in a new way. Um, so, yeah. And what was the last one I said? <laughs> yeah, let's go back to fractured in a second, because you said a lot <laughs> that I'm interested in unpacking, but the other one was brilliant. 
Oh, brilliant. Yeah. I, you know, I just love my kids. They're great. They're just so funny and they surprise me all the time. So I think I said brilliant in this. My mom is, is Irish. She's from Dublin and brilliant is like, means like wonderful in that sense. So, um, when you say something's brilliant, it means it's, it's gone very well. Um, so yeah, I just, you know, I, I'm, maybe I, I said that to offset sleepless. <laughs> <laughs> because I'm really glad that I became a mom, um, despite some, you know, <laughs> some issues, um, yeah. you know, with never, never getting enough rest. But, um, but it's a, it's a, it's a good ride. <laughs> yeah, I think that sums up well. I right before this was the reason I was a couple minutes late was because I was trying to cover all of the dark circles right under my eyes. <laughs> <laughs> I'm <never rested> now. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Maybe someday, right? Right. Maybe. Yeah. yeah. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. Cause your kids are, so my daughter's five, but your kids are a little older. They're 11 and 14 and you're still exhausted or more exhausted. Yeah. Exhausted? Um, well, you know, I do generally sleep through the, like, I don't, I'm not usually woken up by a crying child anymore. Usually. Um, <laughs> so yeah, but I also think that, um, you know, as my kids have gotten older, their lives have become more complicated. So I'm constantly like folding that into my Mm -hmm. own life. You know, when they were little, you know, they did wake me up to eat every couple of hours, but you know, mostly they just kind of (laughs) snuggled and I didn't have to, you know, negotiate carpool schedules and, you know, who's going to ballet and who's doing a music lesson and who's, you know, and did they finish their homework and did they remember to eat and, all this stuff that is, yeah. So it's just a different kind of busyness, I think. Maybe not, maybe it's a little bit more, uh, heady than the, like, real, like, labor of motherhood, which early motherhood is just so physical. Um, ooh, yeah. That's interesting. I'm not sure we talked about that on the show before, the balance between, or the, divide between the the physical labor of motherhood early on and then the more mental um labor of motherhood as your kids get older and change and grow that's fascinating yeah yeah I think that's um I didn't you know I'm the oldest in in my family and so I've tried to tip my younger sisters to some stuff but like (laughs) I was not expecting um I wasn't expecting how physical motherhood would feel to me, you know, and I think that's a failure of our society, really, that we don't prepare women for that aspect Mm of, you know, pregnancy, labor, birth. In other countries, people have things like, you know, physical therapy after giving birth, which makes total sense. This is like huge, you know, (laughs) physical change that you go through in a very brief period of time. Like, yeah, you need a little rehab after that. And so, um, yeah, and just all the lifting and carrying and, you know, um, struggling with zippers and buttons and stuff and like forcing kids into snowsuits. I remember actually like the relief when my son, who's younger, was no longer in a car seat and I wasn't having to do those freaking buckles all the time. Like I think that I damaged my wrists doing those buckles, you know. Like, yeah, so, you know, so there's like, there's that. And, um, but then, you know, once they're buckled in, they're all set, you know, you don't have to worry about, you know, 
is somebody bullying them at school or like, you know, you, you know what they're doing. So, um, so yeah, that is a shift between, and it's also a, a, a different way of, of mothering, you know, you can't be there all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, as they get older, they feel a little bit more like this, like phantom limb that's like going out into the world and doing stuff that like could actually cause you great pain, but you have no control <laughs> <laughs> over it. Um, and so that's where the mental stuff comes in, like, and keeping connection with them, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I love the phantom limb idea. I hadn't thought of that, but that's exactly what it feels like. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I have, I have, um, have you seen the, that brilliant documentary, My Octopus Teacher? I started it with my daughter and I, that was probably a mistake because she's maybe a little too young to like really Mm -hmm. get into it. So maybe I should watch it again, but tell me why. Oh, well, because I had already, already been fascinated with octopi (laughs) um i'd seen that you know there's one at the new england aquarium and um we have some family out in seattle and there's a wonderful aquarium in seattle and they have this great octopus tank with a giant pacific octopus it's just like massive so i was already kind of fascinated by them and um you know the first thing i learned was that female octopi um you know they they live for several years. They lay their first clutch of eggs. They sit on it and they starve themselves to death caring for the eggs. And, um, and I learned that at a moment when I was in that real like physical labor period with my children. And I was like, Oh my God, like I can't even write about that. That seems like a perfect metaphor, but I can't approach it now in my work. It's too painful. Um, but then I, you know, I was, I, I watched this documentary, which just do go and finish it. It's incredible. Um, but the thing that really struck me watching this documentary was that, um, they can, octopuses can lose their, their arms and then regenerate them. Mm-hmm. And they have, and something like 40% of their cognition, like their thoughts are in their arms. Really? Like, yeah, like, like, they, they think with their arms, they like touch and taste and like, and that's, that's like, that's part of their brain. And so then I started thinking, well, then what happens? Like when they lose an arm, they like lose part of their brain. Like, how does that, you know, how does that work? And then they grow it back. I mean, that's, and that felt really actually much more accurate to motherhood, to my experience of motherhood, right? That you're like always having to sort of allow that arm to go out and maybe it's going to get cut off. And like all of those thoughts and ideas and, you know, are, you know, in this other being that, and and maybe they'll bring them back to you, but they get to have them on their own. Um, anyway, I have a new poem about it because I just, you know, I couldn't, I couldn't not write that. <laughs> yeah, I feel um, like yeah, it's really leave the poems in organically, and let's do that now. Can do you want to read that poem to us? Oh, sure. Yeah, it's yeah. actually it's like not in the book. It's uh-huh. um, it's this it's like a really new poem. But um, uh-huh. if you're comfortable yeah. reading it, I'd love to hear it. Sure. Um, where is it? I'm putting I'm putting you on the spot here. <laughs> yeah, I know. I have to find it now. Uh, it's I'll tell you, it's in. The, yes. Oh, 
Now, while you're looking for it, I remember um, poet Stephanie Burt also talked about octop- octopods. Octopus. Yeah. Let's well, look um, that up. <laughs> and I had never heard that before, that that sort of um, angle of motherhood as represented by an octopus. And it, I, it really struck me, too. I haven't done anything with it, but just that now two poets are the two people in my life who've told me about this this metaphor with the <laughs> octopus. It's fascinating. Yeah, they're well. They're incredibly intelligent creatures too, which I didn't know. And and you sort of don't. They don't. You know, we kind of we can accept that like mammals that look a little bit like us and have like you know heads and limbs that are sort of recognizable as connected to humans, like that they might be intelligent. But octopuses or octopi, whatever, <laughs> they look so different. You know, and so the idea of thinking about them as so intelligent and able to learn and I'll never be able to eat them again, unfortunately. <laughs> um, but okay. Yeah. So this is um, actually really brand new, um, but it's part of a series I've been working on in the pandemic, um, which may say a series may not, I don't know. Um, often I write things in series and then I take them out of series eventually, um, but it's a way of getting stuff out Um and having what feels like a continuous project that I can go into and out of, which is kind of part of that fractured thing that I was talking about earlier. Like I need to have something when I'm working that I can just, you know, I can put it down and it won't be completely forgotten. You know, yeah. I'll have a, a something of a thread, which you fiction writers get because you have longer pieces. Um, so the, the idea behind this, um, series is that many years ago when I was working on my first book, If a Storm, um, one of my mentor poet teachers, Mary Jo Salter, was looking at some of the poems in the manuscript and she said she'd noticed, just as a meta comment, that a lot of them ended with sort of looking at at the sky Hmm. as, you know, either like a moment of escape or inspiration or something. which I hadn't noticed before. And then, and that, that was, you know, probably 10 years ago. And then, um, more recently I was exchanging poems with another poet friend. Um, and she noticed, and these are, these are poems for the book that's coming out. Um, and she said that she'd noticed a lot of them ended with a gesture towards sleep. And I thought, Oh, that's kind of a weird sort of thing that I'm doing in my my mind <laughs> like why am I you know I used to always look towards the sky and now I always look towards bed again sleepless <laughs> most of the poems in my first book were written like prior to having children <laughs> so there's a connection um so <laughs> I'm literally so I, always looking at my bed so I understand <laughs> there it is <laughs> yeah yeah so um Anyway, so I wasn't, it, I, you know, I, the, my, the book that's coming out, Flutter Kick, was taken at, kind of at the beginning of the pandemic. And, and then I was like, oh, it's okay. I guess I'm done with that book because I wasn't expecting it to be taken yet. And, um, so that was wonderful. But now, now what do I do? And I was also in this situation of like everyone being home, homeschooling, all this stuff, you know, like my, I'm a teacher. My husband's a teacher. Both our kids are in school. Like, it was a little intense in my house. Um, and I started writing a series that just used that, those two observations 
as a frame. So all of the poems start with the line, start with a title, all my poems used to end in sky. And then the first line is, but now they end in sleep. And then the, um, and then all of them sort of do end with at least a, an illusion or a movement towards sleep, um, to kind of follow the rule. So, um, so anyway, that that's a really long introduction. I apologize, but that, no, this is one of those poems. <laughs> yeah, and I'm going to highlight you here. So if I go away, that's why I haven't left. You. Oh, okay. All right. All right. All my poems used to end in sky, but now they end in sleep, where I might dream of the giant Pacific octopus I once saw at the Seattle Aquarium, rust red, fluorescing to electric blue and back, legs hungering at all of us passing by. When I read that a female octopus lives alone her whole life until she mates, then sits guarding her clutch of eggs, not feeding until they hatch and she, starved, dies. It seemed too easy. My kids next to me, reaching their hands to meet her suckers safely on the other side of glass. I have not died for them, although I would, I tell myself, push them out of the way of the careening truck or body block the bullet, but this has not been required. I am not evolutionarily programmed to dwindle to a ragged shape on seafloor, pale and spent outside my den, waiting for a shark to tidy my carcass away. No. But when I hear that an octopus carries two-thirds of her cognition in her arms, arms that can telescope to twice their reach, their slime-covered suckers letting them taste and see whatever they touch, I feel, yes, yes. As my kids spread from me now, fingers sticky with lunch into every crevice of museum, the tide pool touch tank where the hermit crabs might pinch and the sea urchins will draw blood, the underwater dome circled by venomous dogfish, the deep open air pool where harbor seals hunt and play. An octopus can survive if one of her arms is taken, torn off by predator or accident, will even grow a new one in its place. But what happens to the touches and thoughts that go with it? Are they the fine first curls and milk teeth long divided from the nursing nerve, kept insensate in a jar atop the dresser? I watch her, wondering if I'm the thing she wants to know and at the same time flee as she tents her muscles into horns, then subsides, chromatophores within her skin expanding and contracting to match the color first of a pile of pebbles, next my shirt, and finally a neighboring anemone. But let me not anthropomorphize. I am here human in the aquarium. My children spreading themselves as wide as they can from me, then retracting back for a snack or to report what they've seen, all of us changing shape beneath the watery lights, blurring us into an almost liquid, almost animal sleep. That was beautiful. Thank you. Yeah. Beautiful and Thank you. 
I love the the interweaving of venom and beauty. It's just lovely. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, we see a bunch of comments here. Um, other people who also have love for octopi or octopuses. <laughs> she loves my octopus teacher too, and Julie Tobel says she also loves octopus. So you've hit it in an octopi nerve here among mothers. It's Sarah and Julie are both excellent poets, so I really am very touched that they like that poem. <laughs> Yeah, thank you all for joining us. And if you're just joining us now, um, please feel free to comment and ask questions, um, and we'll weave them into the conversation. So, Anna, let's go back a little bit to fractured. And you were talking about <laughs> early on one of the words you chose to describe modern motherhood was fractured. And you mentioned that the sort of fractured nature of your of experience once you have kids, like you only get snatches of time and snatches of attention, has had an impact on your work. Can you talk a little bit about what that impact has been? Um, well, I think uh, first and foremost, it forced me not to take myself quite so seriously, which is always good in a writer. You know, like if you like don't have oodles of time to just sort of think, you know, <laughs> and, and you're always having to just snatch those bits that, you know, you have to kind of uh, just not be so precious with yourself and with your thoughts and also not be so precious, like with your work, you know, you, you just have to write when you have those moments and sometimes it's going to be crappy and then you'll come back to it and do something else with it. So, so it's, that is important. I think also um, just as a mom, at least with my kids, but I think this is not um, unique at all. I, you know, like, what I said, what I do, all of these things keep coming back to me like all the time, right? Like my kids saying them back to me, making faces like I make, you know, quest, why, 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 you know, and I'm constantly having to sort of stop my train of thought and explain and things. And, and that's also part of writing for me is having to make sort of, um, unpredictable leaps. You know, I mean, that's really what metaphor is, right? Comparing two things that you wouldn't normally think of as being similar and figuring out how they go together. Um, so I think that, um, so, so yeah, I, I think that it has made me have to incorporate a whole lot of perspective and also, um, absurdity and humor that I, I don't know that I would have gotten to without the experience of motherhood. I mean, you just, find yourself in such extraordinary, ridiculous situations, say like words coming out of your mouth that are like, you know, like, you know, Charlie, uh, please don't fall out the window. Like, you know, like, how could I like what? <laughs> you know? And, um, and so those started to kind of creep into my poems along with, um, just sort of snatches of in this coming book, I have a lot of, uh, poems that have like, just pieces of news that kind of flutter in, you know, things that I hear sort of with one ear on the radio or read, you know, one paragraph of in the newspaper. And, you know, I never get to like complete the thing, but they, they connect to an experience I'm having in my life. And um, so that as well, that sort of fractured nature of taking in information and having to, you know, figure out how it connects to the here and now, um, especially living in this country where, you know, I mean, in the last two years, but really 
you know, in the last 10 years, like things seem to be getting more and more uncertain and kind of scary. And like, you know, what does this news headline mean for like my kid, me right now? Like how, you know, how do I, how do I, I don't know, ingest this and, and sort of, uh, figure out what to do with it. So, um, so those kind of fractured pieces of information have come into my work as well. Um, as well as humor, you know, I, you know, I wouldn't say that any of my early poems in my first book or two are funny and, you know, some for good reason. There's a lot of stuff in, in my first book about, um, miscarriage. I, I think I told you I, I had a lot of miscarriages before my daughter was born. Um, so, you know, it's hard. It's possible. I'm sure it's possible. But anyway, I wasn't able to make that funny when I wrote about it. Um, <laughs> but now I, you know, I'm writing about things that are equally painful, I think, actually. Um, but, you know, I just can't take myself as seriously as I used to. <laughs> um, yeah. 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 Kids will definitely take you down a couple of pegs, I feel like inevitably like you think you're you're like doing great and then your kid will be like why i don't know what those and like why do you have a mustache why why do you you know they'll ask you like the most embarrassing question and you're like oh god yeah in public too usually it's like yeah yeah Yeah, or they'll like barge into a meeting naked well maybe yours don't do this hopefully but my five-year-old like walking into a a zoom meeting and she's like naked and you know so anyway Yeah, yeah no, my, my son has definitely made an appearance, like in his pajamas, you know, just oh, like, hey, mom, you know. <laughs> like, <laughs> oh, well, that's life. <laughs> exactly. And I think it's good. I know one of the things you wanted to talk about was um, the feeling that you need to hide your motherhood in particularly in professional settings. And I think and I'm interested in your thoughts on this, but something about the pandemic has broken that wall a little bit in hopefully good ways where. I feel like because of kids walking by in their pajamas or, <laughs> you know, the working from home and now everyone has had the experience or not everyone, many have had the experience of working from home and balancing kids with mm-hmm. like homeschooling and work. And I feel like mm-hmm. that's at least for me felt freeing and that I want my child to walk by and for my colleagues to see that I have a small child and that that might be why my attention strays during a meeting. Um, Mm -hmm. Luckily I live or I work in a place that encourages that type of transparency and family uh, work-life balance. And not everyone does, but, um, but I found that to be a plus side of this forced, um, mixing of homework life and work life. But what about you? Cause I know you wanted to talk about feeling the need to hide your motherhood sometimes. Yeah, I, um, I agree. I, about the pandemic and how that's changed things. And I think that, you know, um, I, I think we wouldn't be having a national conversation about, you know, childcare and tax credits and, you know, all these things that are common in other countries. Um, uh, we wouldn't be having that conversation, I think, if if it just hadn't, you know, become so abundantly clear what parents are doing. You know, um, it was convenient before to sort of pretend um, that, you know, your colleagues weren't making this huge calculus all the time. And um, and I think that I was really naive when I 
uh, first, when I first became a mom, um, as I, I said, it, it was a struggle for me. I, you know, it was a, several years of trying to be a mom and not being able to. And then I had this amazing, beautiful baby and I was so pleased and so proud. And I talked about her all the time and, you know, and then I started to notice that, um, you know, people suddenly saw this as a really convenient way to sort of kindly usher me out the door, you know, like, Oh, you're, I know you've got a lot in your plate. You're really busy. Oh, you wouldn't want to have to deal with this. And, um, you know, and I suddenly started saying, Oh, I'm actually, I'm missing out on opportunities and connections. And, you know, I'm being discounted. Um, in a way that, you know, that should have been obvious to me. Like that's been happening to women for decades, for centuries, you know. Um, but I, I just wasn't ready for it or, you know, somehow didn't believe it. And I, I think that that's not uncommon. I, I, you know, I went to a women's college. I, you know, I had a lot of strong female role models growing up. Um, but I feel like I didn't really fully get or become feminist until I had kids and I realized, wow, like I have apparently fulfilled my biological purpose here in this society and everyone's just ready to be like, bye-bye, good job, (laughs) you know, Um, whether consciously or not. I mean, a lot of this stuff is like, you know, this unconscious stuff that we pick up from childhood and from centuries of oppression. Um, so, so I did after, you know, getting that sort of whiplash feel like, okay, I've got to like dial it back, Anna, you know, like you don't need to talk about this, you know, but of course also it's really hard to hide when you're, you know, teaching in a classroom and you're pregnant, like, so, um, so it was a little ridiculous to try and like pretend this isn't happening to me, you know? Um, so that was, you know, that was really, uh, eye-opening for me and disappointing. Um, and I don't think that I really ever found um, a way to deal with it. I, I think maybe that one positive thing that I was able to do was I was starting to feel what I think many women get to, um, like kind of resenting my kids, like because I was getting this backlash. And I was able with the help of reading a lot of great people like Adrian Rich and, you know, to sort of separate and be like, no, actually what I'm angry about is a political social reality. It's not my kids. My kids are awesome. <laughs> you know? um, but I, I certainly didn't feel like uh, being a mom was celebrated, you know, and, and when I started to talk to um, mothers who I knew who were like sort of, you know, 10, 15 years older than me about their experiences, you know, in academia, like they were having to like take a sabbatical to have a kid, you know, that's not like sabbaticals are for research and doing your work, you know, um, things like that. And I hope that that is changing. I think it is because there are, you know, um, a lot, you know, a lot of younger academic, there's sort of a generation of tenured people leaving who were supportive of or brought up anyway in that model. Um, and there are, at least at Emerson where I'm teaching, there are a lot of younger people, women who have kids and, you know, and, and men who have kids and who are just aware that that's 
an impossible thing to ask of people. Um, but I don't know. I feel like maybe I'm like five years too old <laughs> to benefit from that or something. Um, yeah. 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 No, I've heard that so often. And I think academia is such a specific atmosphere, right? Where, mm-hmm. where to advance, there's this antiquated set of criteria that mm-hmm. is very much centered on men's experience, unfortunately, with like the idea of even taking a sabbatical for research and traveling or something. Mm-hmm. If you have kids, young, young kids, I imagine that's a very difficult thing to do. Right. Yeah. 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 But um, I'm going to shift gears just a little bit because I know something else that you wanted to talk about um, was the experience of your daughter growing up and um, now entering her teen years. She's 14. Right. And how yeah. that's intersecting with your own reflections on your girlhood specifically. You wanted to talk about trauma. So let's go there. Yeah, well, that, I mean, I suppose that's another thing that I wasn't expecting so much about motherhood, um, that, that a lot of motherhood is sort of watching your kids get to ages that you can suddenly remember being. And that plunges you right back into who you were then and what you were experiencing then. And, um, but from this interesting new outside perspective, right? It's almost like you're watching yourself and this new person, you know, having to navigate. And, um, but with the knowledge that you have now as an adult and, um, or that's, I should say me, I shouldn't be using this <laughs> second person here. Um, so yeah, um, I think maybe around second grade, when my daughter was in second grade, I started to really sort of have these, this very visceral sort of like, you know, I was so nervous for her going into second grade for no like logical reason other than I had had a very difficult second grade year, you know? And so suddenly I was feeling like, oh, I need to like go into the classroom with her and like be a volunteer and just like make sure she's okay. And like, you know, and she was fine and she had a wonderful teacher and like there was nothing to worry about there. I was just trying to like follow my own second grade self into the classroom and make sure yeah. she was okay this time around, you know? Um, and you know, I, I did kind of know that, but it's, you know, we react emotionally first before we, <laughs> before we get to that like intellectual processing part. So, um, so that was, you know, that was my first feeling our experience of that and as as my daughter Ita has gotten older um yeah just things have come up for me memories and just you know not necessarily not necessarily things that I had forgotten but like a new perspective mm-hmm. on things that I had accepted as part of my childhood and part of my girlhood that when I thought about her experiencing them I was like horrified <laughs> um not you know, I mean, some of it is just like the normal, like kids not being nice to each other and like, you know, feeling really worried about anxious about school work and things like that. Um, but I, I did have an experience when I was 12 um, with um, a, a cousin, a family member um, who um, attacked me. Um, 
he was not much older than me. Um, and, um, and he sort of, he like, I think it was his way of trying to know, uh, like what girls were like, you know, I, he, you know, he was like curious about, you know, how to, how to deal with girls and things like that. And, um, anyway, I was changing and he barged in on me and like forced me to sort of show myself to him and he held me down. And, um, and this is something that like I carried with me for a long time. And, um, I had, you know, I had just sort of like, I'm like, ah, it happened. It was not, you know, something that I want ever to happen again, but it's, and then when I got, I got to the, when, when Ita was turning that same age and I thought of the same thing happening to her, I was like so traumatized. Yeah. I thought like, you know, what would, what would I do? You know, if, and so, um, so, you know, of course I, I wrote about it and sort of processed it that way. And I talked to, my parents about it. I never told them. Um, and, you know, tried to, and, you know, I, I, you know, I don't think that he's a terrible person and, you know, that's not what it's about. Um, but it was about sort of reevaluating an experience mm-hmm. that I'd had yeah. and, and knowing it from a different perspective, knowing it, you know, mm-hmm. and kind of knowing it, I think more truly, for what mm-hmm. it is, mm-hmm. when we're traumatized, we often try to just, you know, make it stop yeah. and yeah. not process it, especially when we're young and we don't know, you know, what we're supposed to do, how we're supposed to react. So, um, so that, yeah, that was something that, um, was unexpected for me as a mom to encounter that. Um, but also, I think really necessary. Like I really, I don't know. I, I don't know how, I, you know, I would have carried that with me my entire life and not, not dealt with it. Not, you know, not gotten, gotten it out in the way that I feel like I was able to do um, and healed myself from it. Um, if I hadn't had somebody to show it to me, you know, and I've actually um, showed her the poem too, um, because you know I think when I was growing up, anyway, I, you know, I I did know about the possibility of attack and rape and trauma and things, but it was something that you know it was like too scary to talk about, really. Mm-hmm. You know, I like nobody talked to me about it seriously until I was in college and you know I went to you know we had so I, I don't know uh, crisis counseling stuff, you know, it, as as part of our as part of being in college, you know. Um but before that it I just, you know, I I think it was like you know you really don't want that to happen to you. I hope it doesn't. Like that's yeah. it, you know. Um, yeah. And so I didn't want that for my kid. I didn't, you know, I wanted to be like, this is something that could happen. This is, and I really don't want it to happen to you, but also we should be open about these experiences. Yeah. yeah. Thank you for sharing that. 
I'm so sorry that happened to you. That's, yeah. Um, is that a poem you would feel comfortable sharing with us? Uh, uh, yeah, sure. Yeah. Um, that's in, in this new book, Flutter Cake. Um, and it was published originally in, um, uh, Northwest Review. Um, Keisha Kuypers took it for me, which was really gratifying and really encouraged me. I was, uh, very nervous about sending it anywhere. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Um, and she, she was really a wonderful editor and supporter. Um, yeah, this is called What is the Poem? Oh, glasses again. <laughs> what is the poem? Is it an apparition, a machine of memory, or the story of remembering? This one begins in summer with a girl alone in her room, changing out of her bathing suit, the damp polyester sucking down her flat girl chest, barely needing to stretch over the slight flare of hips and pelvis and thighs to slide past her calves to the floor. It continues when her cousin slams open the door. It continues when he pins her silent to the bed and pries her fingers one by one and then each thumb from what she tries to hide, then stretches wide her arms and legs to look at all the places the bathing suit has touched. What happened next? Did a voice in the hall intervene? Was he afraid I'd remember my own and scream? The poem doesn't know why he let go, leaving the door flapping after him, useless as a single wing. And the grown-ups in the kitchen didn't ask, just kids, when I ran past and out to the yard's dry grass. But by then there was an order to things, a door the poem keeps forcing open as I twist my shoulders back into the bathing suit's straps lifting them up and over, up and over. Thank you, Anna. What did your daughter think of the poem? What did she say? Oh, she was so mad. She was like, Mom, I want to beat him up. I was like, good reaction. (laughs) (laughs) She's like, who is this guy? Let me at him. (laughs) It's a strong girl. (laughs) Yeah. Um, yeah, she was very, uh, sweetly defensive of me. Um, we talked about it, you know, we talked about how I, it, you know, that he definitely should not have done that, but how that can also be a mistake, right? For like, um, yeah, for somebody to do. I, I mean, and also, um, something that he was taught, I think, you know, in the end he was, replicating something he learned. Yep. So, yeah. Which is also, of course, the, the importance of writing and, and talking about the stuff, you know, to like unlearn these things. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And there's so much from what you've said so far about that, even that one poem that has struck me that the fact that you, it, 
walking with your daughter into her adolescence has made you kind of reflect on your own, right? And been the impetus for some hard conversations with your daughter and impacted your work, just all of these things that all sort of interweave. It's, um, yeah, it's a lot. <laughs> yeah, it's a lot. Yeah. It's a lot. And you know, yeah. um, another thing about sort of going back to the idea of hiding your motherhood, um, that's another thing that I think for a, a while I thought I should do in my work. You know, that I shouldn't, I shouldn't be writing poems about it because that's not universal enough, which is so, everybody has a mother, you know, but, but I think that there, for a long time, there was kind of a bias against publishing poems about this experience that it was seen as niche or, you know, I don't know, histrionic or, uh, what's the word I'm, I'm looking for? Um, you know, I, oversensitive Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. and and so you know I I I worried about that I worried about writing so overtly about the experience but then you know how could I not write about it you know it's that's what I'm going through that's what's happening in the world around me and as I saying earlier it's also what um it's also what informs and sort of creates my perspective. Um, so I just kind of started to do it anyway, almost thinking like, well, maybe none of these poems will ever get published. Like, but I'm just <laughs> going to write them because. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, I think that resonates so much. Definitely with me. I'm sure with many listeners and Julie Chocolate says, or sentimental. Uh, yeah. That word oh. sentimental, right? It's like right. a for writers and fiction as well, I think, probably even nonfiction. But, mm-hmm. yeah, the sense mm-hmm. that, like, for some reason, motherhood is this sentimental or domestic thing to write about when really, like you said, everyone has mothers and mothers are sort of bigger than life. But, yeah, for some reason, we yeah. feel like we have to kind of push it down in our work and. Yeah, I felt that as well for a long time. Yeah, I mean, that's why I love this series. You know, it's just like right there, writer yeah. mother monster. Like, you know, <laughs> um, yeah, thank you, Julie, for, for, yeah, for voicing that. That was the word I was, I was reaching for because actually I had a, in my very, in my first book, If a Storm, I had some poems about early motherhood, mm-hmm. um, you know, infancy of my kids and, that was a comment I often got from people mm-hmm. like a you know, that they couched as a compliment, like, Oh, you write about motherhood, but you're not sentimental. And I started to think like at first I was like, Oh, thank goodness. They don't think I'm sentimental. Oh, phew. You know? And then I was like, wait, why is that bad? <laughs> you know, yeah. like sentiment is something we all experience. And I know it means over the overdoing it. Right. But I, I, I think it's only ever, attached or largely attached to to subjects that women tend yeah. to connect them to connect to and um and so it feels to me like code for you wrote about it but you didn't make me too uncomfortable which is not really what I want to do with my poetry I, I would like to make you uncomfortable you know mm-hmm. <laughs> like not I want I don't want it to be excruciating or anything but like 
you know, I don't, I also don't want a Hallmark card. I, I don't want you to just read that and be like, Oh, that's nice. Okay. You know, I, mm-hmm. I, I want you to feel something. Um, yeah. so yeah, I, 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 that's another aspect of, of deciding to, deciding to, to let all of that into my work. Yeah. I wonder if there's some fear too. And I'm just speaking like from myself growing up, um, reading a lot of male voices, um, in books mm-hmm. about male, things right like war and um Mm -hmm. I don't know angst and intellectual pursuit like all of these things were considered um important and male work and then it took me a long time and I actively dismissed um books that talked about women's bodies like if if it was a woman like having like the red tent I think starts with a woman who's having her period Mm -hmm. and has to go to the tent and I was like nope this book is just you know women's yeah whatever disgusting disgusting (laughs) and looking back I'm like I think part of it was the taking myself very preciously as you said at the beginning and like wanting to be a serious literary author who writes about like important things but the other thing is not valuing my own body and my own womanhood as a valuable thing. Mm-hmm. And so I wonder, I mean, that's just me and my sort of response to some of the things that you've said. But did you have that same sense? Were you sort of pushing away your your womanhood in your work for a while? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. definitely. I, I think that that was like, well, there's this wonderful um essay uh, by Maxine Cuman um, about her relationship with Anne Sexton writing, mm-hmm. learning to write together. And, um, and I teach it all the time. I probably should be able to like, just put my hand on it. Oh, here it is. <laughs> um, from the, the grand permission, this wonderful book of essays that Brenda Hillman edited. And um, it's the very first one, motherhood and poetics. And it's about their relationship like becoming writers. And she talks about how, um, yeah, you know, men wrote about the important things, war and death and, you know, poverty. I, I, don't, I don't know, not even, not even poverty, probably like, you know, politics. Um, and, you know, women, you know, women were just writing about silly little domestic things that, you know, didn't have any real value in the world. Um, and she tells this wonderful story about how uh, when she and she and Anne Sexton were like inaugural members of as the Radcliffe Fellowship, they were in the first bunting class. And um, and up until then, whenever Anne Sexton had needed to like get off the phone with someone because she wanted to write, she would excuse herself by saying that she had a cake in the oven, which is kind of ridiculous, like. I mean, Anne Sexton was not known as a cook, right? <laughs> and then, like, finally, when she won this big award, she would be able, she felt like she was allowed to say, actually, I have to go right now. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, so, like, I, I think that we learn all of that very young, that, like, you know, yeah. the world is, you know, I mean, look at, you know, look who's really still in control of our politics and our society, you know, like, you know, there are more, what is it? Like there are more CEOs named John than there are female CEOs. Like, you know, the the number of senators who are women, you know, like it, it, it's there all the time. And, um, I teach, uh, I teach 
um, American Women Writers Literature class at Emerson. And I always start off by saying, like, this is a class that we shouldn't really need to have, Mm -hmm. right? Like, Mm -hmm. what it points out is that there is a lack of representation (laughs) in other, you know, in other literature classes. And, um, you know, and of course, that's also the class that is supposed to be the, um, I, um, like a multi, um, it, it fulfills all of these different requirements, like, Mm. um, uh, diversity, gender and sexuality, women, you know, like, so, like, everything has to, (laughs) race, class, everything has to go into that class, so that, like, what, you can have, like, the rich, male author class over here all on its own <laughs> and I bring <laughs> you know, all the, all the rich white guys yeah, yeah. you know um yeah. so yeah I I think we just like we are born into that bubble of mm-hmm. messaging and and we can't help but you know especially as as young women like trying to make our mark in the world you know like we we're, we're trying to like aim for the top and wh- who's at the top still right yeah um so that, yeah, I, I think that's partly what I meant when I said that I kind of didn't really understand about feminism until I had kids because I, that, at that point, you know, you can't like hide it anymore. You can't be like, oh, I'm not really a woman. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> well, <it's> apparently. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, well, especially if you have a daughter and you need to prepare her for the world, you can't ignore that she has a body and that she's growing up mm-hmm. and that you need to prepare her for what's to come. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, mm-hmm. it can't be sort of like, oh, you know, it's a gross thing I don't want to think about or an unimportant thing <laughs> I don't want to think about. Right, yeah. right, right. Or I've been told I shouldn't. Right. Right. You know. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Yeah. yeah. I hope that's changing. I I don't know. Maybe that's another thing that um, that is kind of becoming uh, obsolete. I no. I don't think it's obsolete. I think that's. (laughs) But um, I think maybe there's some progress in that direction, notwithstanding the most recent news from the Supreme Court. But, um, yeah. Speaking of, you had a poem mm-hmm. that we talked about before this conversation about Brett Kavanaugh. Should we oh. hear that one? <laughs> so Actually, it's about Christine Blasey Ford. Um, <laughs> yeah, let's reframe um, the narrative there. Yeah, <laughs> right. Um, well, you know, actually, um, I was thinking as I read the, what is the poem just now that, um, that that, uh, that trial, not trial, confirmation hearing. I keep thinking of it as a trial because it should have been. Um, <laughs> but actually it was one of the things that kind of prompted me to rethink what had happened to me. Um, because m- many of the details of what Christine Blasey Ford went through were kind of similar. Like she was wearing this bathing suit and like she was held down and, you know, and I started being like, Oh my God, like that's, eerily familiar to me, you know? Um, so, uh, yeah. So, so my daughter actually appears in, in this one. Um, it's called Fugue, um, which you know, sort of references the repetition, but also the idea of going into a, a kind of fugue state. Um, and it uses, uh, found text from that, from that confirmation hearing. Fugue. 
Can you tell us what you don't forget? The senator's voice repeats from the radio. It's rush hour, Boston, I-93, driving home from dance class with my daughter in the back seat. Her 12-year-old legs stretched long in pink body wrappers brand spandex as she wonders aloud what we're going to eat for dinner. Air brakes wheeze, then release beside us as a bus muscles pass. And should I change the station as the senator's voice repeats, can you tell us what you don't forget above the traffic? Rush hour, Boston, I-93, my daughter in the back seat. Girl whose body I once unwrapped from mine. Is she listening now as the woman speaks? I was pushed onto the bed. His weight was heavy. I shake my head. Boston, rush hour, I-93. As if I could swerve by what edges up in me. He put his hand over my mouth. It was hard for me to breathe. Boston, rush hour, I-93, but I'm cruising a suburban street of dandelion lawns, legs the same age as my daughter, who jams her knees against my seat when I hit the brakes as one last car squeezes in ahead of me. Can you tell us? Boston, rush hour, I-93 is fixed to a grid of red. What you don't forget? Taillights that bleed their, their after images in repeating green. Can you? Against gray sky, I'm tired. Forget picturing my bed back home. What you don't. Quilt pulled, pulled tight against the sheets. Can you? Don't forget. Or is it that other bed? What you? And what year was it? Forget. Don't. What day? Don't. Can you? Forget. How? Tell us. Don't tell. What? Did he? What? Can you forget? Don't tell us. Touch me. I was wearing a one-piece bathing suit. I believed he was going to rape me. Boston, rush hour, I-93. A taillight flickers. Horns begin to beep. How many times will I repeat this drive? Mom, when are we going to move? Her voice reaches toward me, and I ease my weight up off the brake, considering the question. The miles, like bodies, fall between us, and what I don't forget, in Boston, rush hour, I-93, driving home from dance class with my daughter in the back seat. Thank you, Anna. Thanks. Thank you so much for joining us, too. I think that's, I can't think of anything <laughs> to follow that poem with, so Thank you so much for joining us. It's been such a pleasure. And thank you for sharing um, your experiences and being so open and thoughtful with oh. us. It's yeah. my pleasure. Thank you for giving me this opportunity. It was a wonderful conversation. Thank you, Anna. Stick around for a second afterwards so I can say goodbye. Thank okay, you. great. And thank you all for joining us tonight. I hope you enjoyed the conversation as much as I did and um, felt all of the feelings I did too, as you probably saw, I got a little emotional there. Um, but it was such a wonderful conversation. So thank you, Anna, for joining us. And thank you all for tuning in. Please come back next week for our next conversation. And after the fact, you can find this recording on Audible or wherever you get your iTunes um, and on the writermothermonster.com website as well.
Thank you all and have a great night.